This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The government wants to beef up the chief censor's power to root out harmful and hateful stuff online, part of its response to the atrocity in Christchurch two years ago this week. But some in the media have warned that extremism and dangerous extremists are still amongst us and online, while the opposition and internet freedom advocates say this is an overreach, which could even mean that significant and newsworthy stuff could be censored. This week we asked the chief censor about all this, and we look at how the first political opinion poll of the year delivered a telling result that the pollster clearly didn't expect. But first, how the big win on the water this week moved the media in a big way. <laughs> well, I tell you what, it certainly isn't your standard Wednesday. It feels a lot more like midnight on a Saturday. I heard a young child on a boat next to us say this was the best day of his life. I'm pretty close to saying the same thing. It is absolutely... Big America's Cup energy there on News Hub at 6 last Wednesday, the day that Team New Zealand retained the America's Cup, bringing it home again for the country. And the sponsors, and the broadcasters, and all the other media with a whole lot of energy invested in it. Hayden Donnell takes a look now at the wall-to-wall coverage that went full noise once the Cup was won on Wednesday. Why does this mean so much to you? Just everything at this time. Absolutely everything. That's a fan down at Auckland's Viaduct Harbour delivering a typically measured response to Team New Zealand winning the America's Cup in a vox pop for News Hub. Her reaction was in keeping with the mood of the nation and the tone of the day's America's Cup coverage in general. From the moment Team New Zealand won its seventh victory over Luna Rossa at 5.12pm on Wednesday, a kind of delirium descended upon the media in large parts of Aotearoa. Boat racing became the only story in the country. At 6pm, TVNZ One News followed up three hours of America's Cup coverage with 90 more minutes of America's Cup coverage. It even cut into the sacred time usually reserved for Seven Sharp. If anything, America's Cup fever was running even hotter over the channel at News Hub. This is its reporter Lizette Raymer responding to Team New Zealand's victory. We have just won the America's Cup. Thousands of Kiwis have just had a front row seat to sailing history. What a moment, what a memory. The Hodaki Golf has just pushed play on party time. The fervour stretched on into the following day. The Otago Daily Times Thursday front page proudly boasted, Kiwis can fly. And the papers in the stuff stable round the country all ran the same quasi-biblical headline, our cup runneth over. But that made Morning Report's roundup of the nation's front pages a bit repetitive. Yeah, the Waikato Times is also leading with the cup and the headline, Our Cup Runneth Over. The Dominion Post has the same front page as the Waikato Times, as does the press. The Herald devoted its first six pages entirely to the cup. But before you even got to those, there was a special wraparound for the victory edition, paid for by McDonald's. The headline on that was Level 1, spelt W-O-N, a clever reference to both our America's Cup victory and the deadly pandemic sweeping the globe. Before that, the message, You've done us proud, was movingly spelled out in McDonald's French fries. The puns continued. The front page of the Herald proper carried the headline Signed, Sailed, Delivered, riffing on the Stevie Wonder smash hit from 1970. These were good, but none could top the front pages of March 11, when the Herald and almost every other daily paper in the land carried all the lyrics to the 1975 hit Sailing by Rod Stewart. 
This was part of a New Zealand tourism initiative in which people in 15 fan zones were urged to join in with the septuagenarian Scottish rocker and belt out the tune together at 2.30pm as some sort of message of hope to the world, climaxing like this. Rod Stewart may have wanted to be free, but his management obviously didn't feel the same. It was revealed last Thursday all this actually cost taxpayers around $1 million. But that story was drowned out by the continuing celebratory coverage of Team New Zealand's win. RNZ's morning report was drenched in it on Thursday. It had interviews with Peter Burling's mum, offside controller Josh Jr.'s dad, the manager of the Nelson Yacht Club, the commodore of the Tauranga Yacht Club, and a sailing expert and sailing professor who, to be clear, are two separate people. Meanwhile, News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking interviewed the voice of the America's Cup, Peter Montgomery, who is shockingly still able to speak after screaming his most famous line five times in a row at the Cup presentation ceremony the previous night. San Diego 95, the America's Cup is now New Zealand's Cup. Auckland 2000, the, the America's Cup is still New Zealand's Cup. Bermuda 2017, once again, the America's Cup is New Zealand's Cup. And in March 2021 in Auckland, the America's Cup New Zealand's Cup. Peter, just hold up. One more time, the America's Cup altogether remains New Zealand's Cup. For 16 hours, it seemed the history of New Zealand's news would be divided into two ages, before America's Cup and after America's Cup. It felt impossible that we would ever read, hear or see a news report on anything but boating. Much of New Zealand seemed on board with the mediasphere's sailing obsession. But murmurs of discontent were bubbling up. Some of us were starting to suspect there were other things to talk about besides yachting. Stuff's political reporter Henry Cook tweeted that the event was boring and a waste of money. Over on Morning Report, listeners were asking for celebrations to stop short of a ticker tape parade. The idea of a parade, I think Corin put that to, to you a bit earlier this morning. Rod in Wellington is not a fan. Dave Bloody Dobbin, blasting from the nation's radio, yawn, says Rod. He's not a fan. We haven't heard from Dave. We haven't heard Dave, I don't think, over the last week or so. We could do alien weaponry. (laughs) Yes. Yes, that would get people fired up. They could do an America's Cup song, maybe. These grumblers had at least a sliver of a point. Though winning the America's Cup is undoubtedly a remarkable feat of skill and engineering, it could be noted that only three other boats showed up to the competition and one of them tipped over and nearly sank. The bulletin writer Alex Bray hinted at even more sinister undertones in the media's America's Cup obsession. He tweeted, Real dilemma. On one hand, I want to tweet about America's Cup coverage slash naked nationalistic propaganda as a classic example of Chomsky-esque manufacturing consent. On the other hand, I want to be fun and chill online. There might be something to that. In Manufacturing Consent, Chomsky argued the media props up the interests of the powerful through propagandic coverage, which is distorted by its reliance on government agencies and especially advertisers. Luna Rossa, they lost 5-0 to Emirates Team New Zealand. Third attempt. It's their best one so far. 
Can they get a point back on Emirates Team New Zealand? Emirates Team New Zealand, a similar move. We've seen them come in and through the gates. There is a counter-argument, though. Alex Bray is a big nerd who should lighten up. In an Instagram post celebrating their victory, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said Team New Zealand sailors had provided us with such optimism and excitement through a hard year. Critics may say she's failed to fix the housing crisis or make meaningful improvements to the lives of lower-income people who helped elect her, but Ardern has been astute at reading the mood of the median New Zealander. Maybe this great paroxysm of ecstasy, this overwhelming bacchanal of joy, actually stands for something more than just yachting. It's a release after a year of anxiety and sometimes tragedy. Even if the all-encompassing nature of the celebration started to grate for some, it could be worth letting them slide just this once, given the lack of bright spots we've experienced recently. Or as these kids put it much more concisely in one of the TV network's many thousand Vox Pops. Hayden Donnell there, looking back at how the media reacted to the big win on the water last Wednesday. Last Monday was the second anniversary of the Christchurch Mosque atrocity and in the media that day the focus was, as it should be, on those who died and those who have suffered. The crime was recalled but not the criminal. His name barely cropped up. But some in the media lately have been determined to keep the spotlight on the extremism at the root of the crime and the extremists inspired by it who are still among us, they warn, and online. In the run-up to the first anniversary, the Islamic Women's Council told RNZ's Insight programme, which is no longer on the air, the Christchurch mosque attacks might not have happened if politicians, police and security agencies had acted earlier on their repeated warnings of an upswing in Islamophobia and alt-right activity. When they had all the information that they were given, and we've been going through all this material, and we know it wasn't even just our organisation that was speaking to them, and to ignore it and not do anything. We can't continue to work like that as a country. It's not acceptable. Subsequently, the Royal Commission into March the 15th concluded that authorities could not reasonably have identified the threat posed by Brenton Tarrant in advance. And one journalist who reckons that the powers that be haven't looked hard enough for extremists since the atrocity is newsroom's Mark Dalder. Recently, he pointed to instances he'd covered in the past two years. And last year, in a piece called On the Internet, No One Knows You're a Terrorist, Mark Dalder detailed being targeted himself, both online and in real life, by people who objected to his journalism. And the threats he received ranged from the absurd and overwrought to the downright disturbing and violent. Now, the fact that all these people left at least traces of their intentions and identities online prompted Mark Dalder to ask, why aren't police on the lookout for extremism? Police cannot realistically treat every hateful online message as a precursor to violence because there'll be tons of trolls online, but far fewer potential terrorists. But he reckoned there is still a systemic unwillingness and incapability on the part of the police to deal with online hate. I can, with little difficulty, regularly monitor sites like 4chan and other popular forums for New Zealand's extremists as part of my job, and I'm not a well-resourced spy agency. And while finding and rooting out relevant extremist stuff online is a challenge, what about how it gets there in the first place and stopping it spreading, which is where the tricky topic of censorship comes in. 
After the attack in Christchurch two years ago, New Zealand's major internet service providers took extraordinary action to block websites where the terrorist video and manifesto had been found. After five days, the chief censor, David Shanks, made the video illegal for anyone in New Zealand to view, possess or distribute, and three days later, he did the same with that manifesto. Two months later, governments and some of the world's biggest tech companies signed up to the Christchurch Call, a non-binding pledge to eliminate terrorist and extremist content online. And among other things, that asked governments and online service providers to try and find and remove extremist stuff as fast as possible. And with that goal in mind, in October 2019, the government injected $17 million into the office of the Chief Censor and the Censorship Compliance Unit within the Department of Internal Affairs, alongside a law change to help the Chief Censor get objectionable material online removed faster. In short, the bill would make live streaming objectionable content a specific criminal offence and it would let the chief censor classify publications without having to give reasons immediately and would also allow the Department of Internal Affairs to filter the internet using software to block public access to entire websites or specific objectionable content. At the time, the Films, Videos and Publications Classification Amendment Bill didn't cause much of a fuss But when the bill reappeared in Parliament last month, there was plenty of political opposition. National MP Todd Muller, for example, warned darkly of walking down a path to state censorship, and his colleague Simon Bridges said it could even interfere with news coverage. For example, to take down eyewitness video of the killing of George Floyd, and closer to home he suggested that Newsroom's recent headline-making videos of Oranga Tamariki at work could be censored. Dare I say it, it's a cancel culture and it's not a path we should go down. I don't see this law as isolated. I think we see more of it coming. And the effect on society overall is quite insidious. Soon after, the National Party's media and broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee called the bill a legislative leviathan that could threaten the future of the internet in New Zealand, and she said it was the start of the next national debate on free speech and censorship in New Zealand. Well, this week, the chief censor David Shanks told a conference on social media at Otago University's National Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies, online platforms today were still not receptive to public concern about violent content. Lots of platforms actively dissuade people raising issues. I, I think we're all being trained just to take it, mm. <laughs> basically. Mm. Broadly, I can't escape the sense that, you know, we're just being trained just to look away or try and ignore it or suck it up. And and that's terrible. David Shanks reminded the audience at Otago University he has pretty broad powers as things stand, the powers that he deployed after March the 15th, 2019. So what then did he have in mind for the future, possibly with expanded powers over digital era media? Here's what he told the Otago University conference last Tuesday look, actually, we can be better than this, and this is an opportunity to think broadly and deeply and listen to to, um, other voices about what good looks like in this space. And, you know, I think there's some very obvious moves that we can do here to make um, the current regulatory system and framework more coherent and work better and be fitter for purpose for a digital environment. Now, is that easy? No. Um, is it going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Um, are we going to be able to make a move and learn from it and, and, and move forward? Yes, absolutely. 
but plenty of people in the media would be alarmed about having a digital age regulator seeking out harm that had takedown powers over them as well as online social media platforms. So this week I asked the chief censor David Shanks if that's really a possibility. But first, two years on from the Christchurch atrocity, are things still as toxic and extreme online as journalists and activists have been warning? I think the indicators we're seeing are that it is getting worse, and we've got some obvious examples of that. Toxic or dangerous conspiracy theories, the level of hatred um, seeming to uh, be be progressing through a lot of uh, internet platforms. It's a huge challenge, um, and some people would say, you know, it, it's almost impossible to tell, tell from all the volume of uh, troubling or um, objectionable or, or, or hateful speech what it is that we should be focused on. And it is a challenge. But the fact that it's hard and complex doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, think our way through these, these difficult problems. So where are you seeing out there on the internet the harmful stuff that needs to be censored? Is it actually on those platforms, the likes of Facebook and Twitter? You see it everywhere in the internet if you know where to look. The Facebooks, the the YouTubes, the Twitters and the like are imposing terms of use on their users. They're increasingly, I would say, getting more engaged and potentially more effective in terms of enforcing those terms of use. Um, But what we also see are super spreader operators of violent extremism or extremist thought who are working out how to monetize those platforms. It's, it, it gets a lot of views, shares, but it all helps power up the engagement model that the platforms are running on. But you'd be a bit of an idiot, wouldn't you, if you were a genuine would-be terrorist or extremist to put that stuff on big platforms like Facebook wouldn't it be on forums, basically uh, websites that very few people would know about, things like that? That's, that's where you'd, you'd be doing those communications if you were really into it? What you see actually is um, extremist groups and believers operating in really effectively um, uh, platforms that have very low levels of moderation and oversight, but they need an audience. They need to keep growing their audience and they need followers. And so what you see is very sophisticated techniques of understanding the terms of use of whatever platform you're operating on and operating just up to the threshold of those terms of use so that you can start getting that catchment of broader engagement from people who potentially are being sent to your site, um, your channel, um, by looking at some you know, rel- relatively innocuous and unrelated material. So this is the rabbit hole effect that has been, that is increasingly being discussed and understood in the media. Mm. Um, so if you're getting material referred to you by, um, say, the Department of Internal Affairs or uh, police or other law enforcement agencies, you can act on that. But do you and your office, your team, do you actually actively monitor the internet for the stuff, go looking for it? That is not our role. The, the system is designed to operate with enforcement officers and officials whose job it is to do that work and then to, to, to refer material. Um, I would say, though, I spend personally a significant amount of time on the internet in places that I wouldn't go to by choice to monitor the health of the, the system and to have early warning about issues that are developing. As an example, um, on the events of the uh, the riot and the attack on the Capitol in, in January the 6th, 
Um, I had a text from uh, a former colleague living in Washington that came through at 5am in the morning saying, look, um, the president is about to address a large group um, just, you know, uh, just a few blocks down from where I live and I'm really worried you better get on this. And I spent that day actually monitoring every feed I could to track what was happening that day because I, my reasonable supposition, and unfortunately it came to pass, was that some bad things were going to happen here. People would likely die, and when they did, they would be filmed. I recognised that what was happening in this situation was, was highly dynamic and, and could be brutal. Um, what also was happening was uh, historic it was actually a matter of you know national interest in the US and great international interest. So in my mind, the, the paradigm that I'm looking at is, am I looking at something that is effectively propaganda for death, where someone is live streaming themselves an abhorrent and vicious attack while trying to promote what they're doing? Is that the frame that I'm looking at? Or is this a situation where something awful is happening and being recorded, but that that makes it a matter of record that may be important not to strike down, that may be important actually to maybe wrap some protections around, as was in the case of the George Floyd uh, video, which, you know, as you well know, was an awful moment in history, was a terribly affecting um, video if, if you watch the, the whole footage. But that would be wrong, in my view, to um, render that an objectionable publication that no one in New Zealand, you know, that, that people in New Zealand will be at risk of um, prosecution um, for sharing, commenting and viewing. Back in, I think it was October 2019, uh, the government boosted the funding for uh, the censorship compliance unit that operates under the uh, auspices of the Department of Internal Affairs. Um, according to news reports, $17 million, which is, that's about two-fifths of RNZ's annual budget, so a really substantial amount of money. Uh, does that provide for you know a really effective level of um, of monitoring for picking up these kinds of threats? Um, I guess you know that sort of commitment and investment by the government in this space I think could potentially go a long way with with the right thinking up front about what you're looking for and, and what your intervention strategies are. Well, the, um, the Broadcasting Standards Authority last year had a, a bit of a shift in its strategic direction, and they announced this principle of. Uh, pursuing uh, freedom from harm in broadcasting. So a bit of a departure from traditional just observing the standards as they're written down in the codes and enforcing those. Uh, do you or um, or even perhaps this, uh, the, the people working out of the Department of Internal Affairs and the censorship compliance, do they actually monitor news media and broadcasting as well, journalism in New Zealand? No, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't believe that they do. I wouldn't... Um I don't think that they would monitor that because really we do have a very clear regulatory split between um, content and, and, and content under my act is traditionally viewed as physical items, you know, film reels, DVDs and, and tapes and, and literature and the like, but also includes digital content. So, you know, um, 
something uh, you know something that that most people won't be aware of as publications include anything with audio video etc including digital content and I can call in any content that I think maybe may present a harm to the public so theoretically I could call in the internet and start trying to um, classify it good luck with that if, <laughs> if, mm. if I you know it would be a full errand but you know that that's that's how the architecture is but broadcasting is you know is 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 rightly, I think, separately recognised as um, as the fourth estate um, needing uh, its own regulatory regime. So no, I don't think the um, the DIA um, process would involve monitoring of media as as we're kind of talking about it here. Although the media ecosystem, the info ecosystem, is all merging and morphing in, in, into one. So. No, um, broadcast isn't a mandate for DIA. That is a role for broadcasting standards and the, the Ministry of Culture and Heritage. Um, but I think where we're getting to is the the boundaries between traditional kind of regulatory frameworks are all blurring and breaking down. And we've we've got an important opportunity, I think, to to start rethinking what those fundamentals look like. Mm. Well, indeed, the powers of your office at the moment are... Uh, kind of up for review. There's a, a bill before Parliament to change the way your office works. This is the difference with other media regulation, I guess, and the Media Council or the Broadcasting Standards Authority or Advertising Standards Authority. Um, they'd release their decisions. I mean, we don't know what tests you're applying or what people are reaching these conclusions, who, who these people are in the compliance unit in the department who might be looking at this stuff. Uh, it's really behind a curtain, isn't it? Look, it, it can be, and you've got to design in, to the greatest degree that you can, elements of transparency and systems checks. You know, we're talking about control of the discourse. We're talking ultimately about the ability to make decisions about what people can and cannot say or do or access. These are fundamental um, issues and decisions affecting the core of our democracy. You you cannot make those decisions capriciously. You have to build in full safeguards, checks and transparency into that system to make sure that they are used appropriately and they don't in themselves potentially provide a, a risk to democracy. Well, some politicians are concerned about this. They've spoken against the bill. Uh, for instance, Simon Bridges said in Parliament he referred to the video of George Floyd. He said that could end up being swiftly censored. He also uh, raised another possibility just obliquely like the newsroom.co.nz and its um, its eye-opening videos about Oranga Tamariki at work with a uplift of a, a baby in a Māori whānau and then later one, a reverse uplift, an older child. You know, he, he was hinting that these things could be struck down and, and yet these are things, as we know, that have you know led to debate and even inquiries. Um, is he right that this bill does kind of increase the opportunity for, for that sort of censorship? I'm not sure that he does. The reality is George Floyd could have been considered um, and classified by me and by my office on the current settings. That already is a publication that is, you know, really a matter of violence that can be classified in the system as it stands. So but in does, theory, the bill, does the bill as it's written make it more likely that something that's clearly newsworthy like that could actually more swiftly be... Be, be classified and therefore the media wouldn't be able to comment on it or, or run the actual material, let alone ordinary people online. I, I, 
I tend not to think so because, um, again, the core activating principle in this bill is still is it objectionable or not? So that takes you straight back to what I'm talking about, which is these difficult determinations and what is and is not across the line. Well, you're in a really difficult position here, aren't you? Because, for example, you have Melissa Lee, Nationals Media Broadcasting Spokesperson, saying this is the next frontier in New Zealand's great debate about free speech and censorship. On the other hand, the Otago University event you attended this week, I tuned into part of that. Huge concern there amongst people in that room about vulnerable groups being victimised online that need to be protected. And, and you know, a lot of people feeling that society was kind of innately racist and discriminatory in a lot of ways and that this you know, could be a tool for you know, protecting people. Do you fear that you could become, in the middle of if this bill, does become more controversial in some kind of culture war between people that want to intervene in order to protect some people's rights and others who want to protect free speech? Well, my title is Chief Censor, so it's not a matter of fearing that I'll be at kind of ground zero of those sorts of debates. You're I'm there. there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm there, whether I like it or not. That's okay, because this is a critically important debate and discussion to have, and I have no doubt it is going to be a vigorous and testing and and at times difficult debate. I I am cautiously optimistic that we've got an opportunity here in Aotearoa to synthesise some of the the great thinking that's happening overseas to to really um, engage with our values as a a free society but also as a society that cares about all of our members to work out where the balance lies. And so you, we can only do that through engagement and debate and actually listening. This does not take us to, in my view, we must censor and classify and restrict in, in the formal kind of um, compulsory and legislative sense um, more material necessarily. In order to protect specific we, groups of people. We've got to think about what's the what's the suite of interventions and potentially softer interventions that can apply to actually lower the temperature where it needs to be lowered or to provide protections where it needs to be provided. Well, finally, David, you mentioned earlier we have a fractured kind of system of regulation for, you know, media content and, and you know, the greater online world as well. We've got a Broadcasting Standards Authority, which has kind of the law behind it um, for broadcasting and then for what we used to call the print media, um, but it's also online stuff now as well, the Media Council, which isn't self-regulated. We have one for advertising. We have um, in the online, we have NetSafe, we have, we have your office, all sorts of stuff. Now, you've talked about possibly time to consider a new regulator with the ability to tackle online content. But look, Plenty in the media, I think, would be alarmed about having a digital age uh, regulator that incorporated aspects of your office, people looking for harm rather than just, say, upholding mm. standards. I mean, do, do you really think that that would fly? I think, I really do think it could fly um, as long as you thought through and engaged with really seriously those um, reasonable concerns. Um, so I think historically we've got a cycle of kind of creating new offices um, and new regulators focused on whatever the new technology of the day is, and, and there's, there's a possibility we could do that again now. Um, 
and then there's a rationalisation. So I, I, I'd almost think that that's inevitable in, in some in some way at some point in the future, if, if not imminently. So that needs to be addressed. And really, most countries have regulators, just as we do, looking at kind of film and, and, and content and others looking at broadcast and others looking at other aspects, just as you've described. But no one's specifically tasked with what's happening on social media, what's happening on digital platforms. And that's, you know, that that's the vast amount of um, content and potential harm that we're talking about. So, uh, you know, if you look at examples, say, in Ireland, what they've done is they've created, I think, a media commissioner um, with, with different kind of commissioners looking at the, the existing reasonable different platforms and areas which do require differentiated responses such as a broadcast you know, media commissioner and, and the like. But I think media editors, they will not want anyone with censorship-type powers being involved in... Th- those, those fears and concerns are absolutely well-founded and I think we've got to get beyond that, <laughs> basically, um, because, you know, we, if you approach this through the classification censorship-type paradigm, you end up with one kind of set of solutions. If you approach it through a, a standards-type, you know, paradigm, you, you end up somewhere else and, and, and so on. And what I'm saying is, no, put, kind, of, kind of put that to one side, look at what's needed... Yeah, and primarily in terms of look at what's needed in terms of protecting democracy and protecting freedom of speech is almost your first principle, um, and then building out from there in terms of right with those key things of you know protection of hum- human rights, protection of freedom of speech, protection of the importance of um, free and open debate, and um, broadcasting independence. Then beyond there. Um, with those as given that we're going to design into the system, what are the practical things we can do now to do better in terms of addressing issues around extremism? And it, yeah, I'm, I'm very conscious as Chief Censor saying these things, people are going to go, okay, well, we, we think we know where you're coming from, but actually in my own head, I'm actually starting from a let, let's protect the, the fundamentals of the system first. Mm. And I think once you've got that narrative, then people kind of de-escalate and go, okay, if we're not, you know, if we're not locked into a particular lens about how we're approaching this, then we've actually potentially got a constructive discussion we can have, and I think that's where we we need to get to. But do, do you think we should end up with a unified regulator at some point in the future, a digital age regulator, where there is someone who has the power, like you, uh, a chief censor, to actually pretty much order the media not to host a certain kind of content if, if it looks like it's harmful? Or... I'm I'm not wedded to that idea. I see that as one possible kind of outcome from this, but I I think there's a lot also that we can do right now in terms of just making sure that the regulators we currently have work um, more effectively together. And, you know, I, 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 in, in some respects, we almost work as a virtual regulator now when, in, in these difficult kind of interzone spaces. And, we, and we're leveraging relationships and open communication between us, which we could do more of. So, look, I think there's multiple different pathways here. That was David Shanks, the chief censor. The Films, Videos and Publications Classification Amendment Bill, which sets out changes to the powers of his office, passed its first reading in Parliament last month. Public submissions are now being called. The closing date is Thursday, the 1st of April.
As the chief censor David Shanks mentioned earlier, there's a lot of wariness these days about the market power of the big tech platforms, not least in the media, where they distribute the news but don't create any, but gobble up increasing amounts of critical digital advertising revenue in the process. That's put pressure on the likes of Google and Facebook to come to the party, and the Australian government recently passed into law a code which will guarantee that they'd pay for locally created news one way or another. And this week, Google announced moves which will, for the first time, see it footing the bill for local journalism here. Hayden Donnell wrote about that on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, if you're interested, and he talked about it, amongst other things, in Midweek Media Watch this week with Karen Hay on The Lately Show. This week, Hayden also looked at some fascinating reporting of crime and punishment lately. How does it feel to be kicked out of Australia? Welcome aboard Australia's Con Air. Every seat taken, this plane is full with the worst of the worst. Our country doesn't want you. Are you excited to go home? That's Jordan Fabris. Now, as a word of advice for any budding journalists, if you do find yourself harassing people at their lowest ebb at the behest of a government, you've probably uh, strayed away from the primary purpose of your profession. You can hear that if you missed it on the RNZ website or in our section of the RNZ app or wherever you get your podcasts. Right, let's get into our first poll of 2021. Again this year, we're seeing COVID dominate. Labour is on 49, down four from our last poll in December. National is still lingering in the 20s, only picking up two. The Greens are up one, sitting on a healthy nine, and Act is steady on eight. That was TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay last Monday with the results of the first TVNZ political opinion poll of 2021. And as you heard there, the results showed not much change in support for the major political parties and the minor ones since TVNZ's last Colmar Brunton poll back in December. But one part of that poll did deviate from the results three months ago. Now let's look at the preferred Prime Minister numbers. Some big shifts here. Jacinta Ardern has dropped 15 points and is now on 43. But it's even worse news for Judith Collins. She's dropped four and is back in the dangerous territory of single digits. Jacinda Ardern suffers personal popularity crash was the headline and stuff, while the Herald said the Prime Minister was dealt a personal blow in the first opinion poll of the year. But were those plunges in personal support really significant for Jacinda Ardern and Judith Collins? Well, tellingly, the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition were the preferred Prime Ministerial pick of only about half of the respondents. TBNZ factors out those who don't support a party in the Colmar Brunton poll so they can translate the results into seats in Parliament after an imaginary election. But they do factor in those who don't or can't pick a preferred Prime Minister. Jessica Much Mackay mentioned this herself at the end of her report like this. The number of people who don't know who prefer as Prime Minister or refuse to answer has more than doubled to 35%. So more uncertain voters ready to be won over by the right leader. The question that result really raises is why would there be huge changes in preferred Prime Minister for the top two if the same poll showed support for their parties was actually stable? 
The apparent popularity of Jacinda Ardern and Judith Collins both slumped because only the people answering the question this time round itself slumped. Take out the don't knows, and the support for those two was only down a fraction since December, a couple of percentage points at most. So nothing then for Jacinda Ardern to lose sleep over, or for Judith Collins to lose her job over. However, TVNZ and Colmar Brunton could lose some sleep over that huge climb in people not answering the preferred Prime Minister question. A look back through previous Colmar Brunton polls in the past three years shows that the percentage of people surveyed who didn't pick a preferred Prime Minister when asked varied only narrowly in most cases, between about 15 to 18 per cent. So in fact, it seems to be the popularity of asking us who we prefer as Prime Minister that's actually going south. Between 2014 and 2018, the don't knows or don't cares bounced between 19 and 30 percent in NewsHub's polls carried out by Reed Research. And when TVNZ and NewsHub simultaneously released political polls in June 2020, 33 percent in the Colmar Brunton sample poll didn't or wouldn't name a preferred Prime Minister. Now, does any of this really matter? Well, it does, if only because the political reporters say that it does. And they write the narrative. Jessica Much Mackay, for example, put it like this on the TVNZ website after this week's poll. Political careers can live or die by polls, so polls matter. Ensuring our polls are credible and accurately reflect the wider thinking of the general electorate is absolutely vital. We will continue to seek ways to ensure our polling is as accurate as it can be. Good to know. Now, the reason for that article in the first place was Jessica Much Mackay letting people know that TVNZ's pollster Colmar Brunton is no longer calling Kiwis on landlines, as Jessica Much Mackay explained herself on One News last Monday. So this poll was taken 50% online and 50% on mobile. We're not doing landlines anymore. And that's because people just aren't using landlines in the way that they used to. A lot of people don't even have landlines anymore. We tested it out over the election to make sure that it was accurate. With those preferred Prime Minister numbers, there were big shifts around, and some of that may be down to that change in the way that we ask people. But if the upswing in people not wanting a bar of that preferred Prime Minister question is also as accurate, well, perhaps they should consider dumping that question along with the landlines. The question seems a lot less important to real people than it is for the media looking to create stories about low-polling political leaders under pressure. If they polled viewers on that, TVNZ would probably find that they'd miss those stories in their news about as much as they miss a call from the polling firms on their landlines at dinner time. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team this week. We'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.